welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet podcast series. My name is Georgia Ray, and I am your regular host, but I will not be conducting today's interview. Instead, I am going to hand the reins over to ELI's own Linda Bregan. She's a senior attorney here at the Institute, as well as the director of our Center for State, Tribal, and Local Environmental Programs. She is also a lecturer in law at Vanderbilt Law School and a senior strategic advisor to the Nashville Food Waste Initiative. Today, she will be joined by Vanderbilt Law School student Kristen Sarna in interviewing Howard Lerner of the Environmental Law and Policy Center. In a minute, I will let Linda further introduce Howard and Kristen to you. But before I do that, I wanted to tell you a little more about what we will be talking about today, which is citizen suits. You will hear a story about toxic dumping and one of America's most important freshwater sources. Learn from an expert about the resources required to engage in environmental citizen suits and be privy to an ongoing debate about the role of citizen suits in influencing policy. We hope you leave today's episode with a better understanding of this important mechanism for environmental enforcement, and maybe a hankering to read more about this in the August issue of the Environmental Law Reporter. So without further ado, I will let Linda get into it. Thank you, Georgia, for that introduction. As Georgia indicated, today we'll be discussing citizen suits with our guest, Howard Lerner, who is the president and executive director of the Environmental Law and Policy Center, which I will be calling ELPC during the podcast today. But before we jump in, I want to introduce my co-host, Vanderbilt Law School student Kristen Sarna, who is the editor-in-chief of the Environmental Law and Policy Annual Review, also known as LPAR, which is a joint Vanderbilt Law School Environmental Law to publication in the August issue of ELI's Environmental Law Reporter, in which we highlight some of the most creative and feasible law and policy proposals in the legal academic literature each year on the environment. So by way of background, Howard, our guest today, was kind enough to participate in the ELPAR conference this year, in which he talked about the important and interesting work ELPC is doing on citizen suits, which led to this podcast. And we'll have a lot more on that in a few minutes. But first, Kristen, it's great to have you with us today. Thanks, Linda. First, by way of introduction, Howard, would you mind telling us a little more about ELPC? Glad to do that, Kristen. The Environmental Law and Policy Center is the Midwest leading environmental legal advocacy and eco-business sustainability organization. We're headquartered in Chicago and we have offices in Madison, Minneapolis, Des Moines, Iowa, Grand Rapids, Michigan, Columbus, Ohio, and Washington, DC. We are working very hard and very effectively to protect the Great Lakes and vital natural resources, uh, clean up the air, clean up the water. We do a lot of work around climate change solutions focused on energy and transportation. We have a staff of almost 50 people, about half attorneys. The other half are public policy people, communications people. And our job is to protect the environment here in the Midwest And particularly, we work nationally on places that have major impact for the Midwest. The Midwest is the center of the nation's transportation system. We still have some of the oldest coal plants in the country. When it comes to climate change solutions, the Midwest is absolutely pivotal, and that's what we focus on. We get things done. 
Thank you, Howard, for that that background. As I said, I, I've long admired the work that your organization does in, in the Midwest and has implications far greater even than your geographical region. So um, can we start with some basic background on citizen suits, sort of the who, what, when, where, and why? Um, what are citizen suits? Who can bring them? How are they brought? And why are they important? When the Clean Air Act was passed originally back in the early 1970s and the provisions then slightly modified. Same with the Clean Water Act. There were citizen suits provisions in those laws. And what those citizen suits really are is a public-private partnership. If the federal government or a state government is going to bring an enforcement action against a polluter that succeeded uh, that company's permits, they have in effect the first shot to do it. But in many cases, the federal government or the state government doesn't have the right resources, or there's a political change, or there's a situation where, for whatever reason, our governmental agencies don't want to go forward. That's the role of citizen suits. So what happens is, if there's a polluter, for example, that's violated the Clean Air Act or the Clean Water Act, a citizens group, the Environmental Law and Policy Center or the Hoosier Environmental Council, can file what amounts to a 60-day notice letter. Uh, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the provisions are very similar. They were modeled after each other, and they've been repeated in a number of the other environmental statutes as well. That 60-day notice letter says, we intend to sue. Here's the violations. Here's the problems. And during that 60 days, both the polluter can move to take corrective action, the polluter and the plaintiff environmental group can get together and see if they can negotiate a settlement, uh, or the federal agency or the state agency can step up and do what's called overfiling. So that's a 60-day window for the government agencies to act. If they don't, the citizen suit can go forward. And the view here of many state attorney generals and oftentimes the federal government is that this is a good public-private partnership. It leverages the ability of citizens groups to take on important cases sometimes when the federal or state governments aren't in a position to do so, and it's additive in terms of resources. One key point that a friend of mine whose legal practice with a major law firm has traditionally been for what we sometimes call the regulated industry, more colloquially, the polluters, is he's always said to me, look, my clients try to do the right thing. It costs them some money to be in compliance, and it really drives them crazy when somebody over there, their competitor, isn't, and nobody's enforcing against them. So one of the advantages of citizen suits is it levels the playing field, and it moves people to the top as opposed to exacerbating a race to the bottom when it comes to pollution. And that's a real advantage of a way citizen suits can be done by environmental groups and community groups to help leverage the process, ratchet it up, and improve healthier clean air and safer clean water. Thanks for that helpful background information on citizen suits, Howard. That provides some important context for our discussion today. Can you next tell us about how ELPC decides which citizen suits to file? And can you give us an example of some recent or pending suits? Let me give you an example, because it's always good to take the theoretical and bring it down to a practical level. Uh, ArcelorMittal, it's now owned by Cleveland Cliffs, has a very, very large steel mill in northwest Indiana 
right on the shores of Lake Michigan. As everybody probably knows, the Great Lakes, largest freshwater body in the world, supplies safe drinking water to 42 million people in eight U.S. states and two Canadian provinces. This particular steel mill is right next door to the Indiana Dunes National Park. And that's a park that has about 7 million people within a 50-mile radius. It's one of the top dozen parks in the country in terms of visitors. Everybody in Indiana, everybody in Illinois, Southwest Michigan loves the Indiana Dunes. Well, what happened a couple summers ago is all of a sudden on a Friday, about 3,000 dead fish showed up in Lake Michigan. What turned out to have happened is a couple days earlier, uh, Arcelor Middle Cleveland Cliffs uh, had put excessive amounts of cyanide and ammonia uh, out of their wastewater treatment system. It went into the east arm of the Little Calumet River and then into the lake. And the company didn't tell anybody. Uh, the public agencies apparently didn't know. The public didn't know until 3,000 dead fish uh, show up in the water. The drinking water intake pipes were closed. Uh, the beaches were closed at the Indiana Dunes National Park and nearby. Um, and this is something that when it comes to the public, everybody loves the Great Lakes. The Great Lakes is where we live, where we work, and where we play. So the Environmental Law and Policy Center looked at what's happening here. This is ammonia and cyanide leading to contamination, dead fish, natural resources problems, safe drinking water problems. We did a little bit of investigation of the facts. It became clear what had happened, and we eventually filed a very detailed 60-day notice letter to ArcelorMittal saying, this is our notice of intent to sue under the Clean Water Act. We discussed this with the federal agencies. We discussed this with the Indiana Department of Environmental Management. For whatever combination of reasons, under the former administration, the Trump administration, EPA did not step up to act within 60 days. The Indiana Department of Environmental Management did not bring an action. So about 61 days later, uh, the Environmental Law and Policy Center and the Hoosier Environmental Council brought a Clean Water Act citizen suit enforcement action uh, in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Indiana. All right, so that's a good example of a case. Uh, ultimately, a couple of months ago, uh, the Environmental Law and Policy Center, Hoosier Environmental Council, the federal government came in, the Department of Justice on behalf of EPA, the Indiana Department of Environmental Management came in, and with the federal and state co-plaintiffs, the Environmental Law and Policy Center and the Hoosier Environmental Council in a parallel case where we were plaintiffs, uh, Cleveland Cliffs, we negotiated a very detailed consent decree. The result of that is a tremendous amount of injunctive relief by which Cleveland Cliffs needs to improve its equipment and operating procedures so it's less likely to be releasing excessive amounts of ammonia and cyanide into Lake Michigan going forward. $3 million of civil penalties, uh, a number of environmentally beneficial projects, including 127 acres of property that ultimately will be transferred, we hope, uh, for use and enjoyment in the Indiana Dunes National Park, and about a million dollars of attorney's fees. So now that you understand what this case is about, let me back up to how the Environmental Law and Policy Center assess the case. First of all, it meets the standard of being really important. We're concerned about protecting Lake Michigan, the Great Lakes. 
we're concerned about protecting safe drinking water supply. We're concerned about protecting the Indiana Dunes National Park. So when we heard about excessive amounts of cyanide and ammonia being pumped into Lake Michigan, 3,000 dead fish, this met the standard of this is important. Uh, secondly, as we began to look at the facts, we realized what was really going on here, how it happened, what the circumstances were. We reviewed the company's permits, and it was very clear based on the company's own uh, discharge monitoring reports and its own permits, there were excessive violations. We looked at this in terms of, all right, are the federal government or the state governments likely to step up and act? And as it turned out, they weren't likely to do so for a combination of reasons. We also looked at the factor that ArcelorMittal, now Cleveland Cliffs, hit played hide the ball. At the Environmental Law and Policy Center, I had a board member who was a former senior environmental health and safety uh, executive at a Fortune 200 company. And one of the things he said to me was, look, with big companies, occasionally stuff happens. That's just reality. You know, don't expect perfection. What you want to look to is when something happens, does the company immediately step up and say to the public, say to the public agencies, say to the regulators, uh, we have a problem here, we need to fix it, we need to clean it up, or do they play hide the ball? And this was a case, uh, unfortunately, where it was a lot of hide the ball. Uh, they simply did not tell people what was going on for a while, and most of the public didn't know anything. It happened until 3,000 dead fish show up floating in the Little Calumet River and in Lake Michigan. So for all those reasons put together after we assessed the case, both the operative law under the Clean Water Act and the facts of what happened as much as we could find out, we filed a 60-day notice letter. And we also asked and we inquired to find out, do we have something wrong here? Are we missing some key facts? Uh, we asked the regulators, we asked the company, if there's something we're missing here, you know, if we have the facts wrong, we're open to hearing from you. Well, we didn't. And we also found out that the federal and state governments were not stepping up. So in the public-private partnership, that's what citizens are, suits are about. We moved forward. We filed a federal court action, a complaint in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Indiana. The case was brought by attorneys at the Environmental Law and Policy Center who have expertise on environmental issues like this one. And we represented both our own organization, which has members in Northwest Indiana, and the Hoosier Environmental Council, which is the state environmental council and also has a lot of members and experience in Northwest Indiana. We move forward. And in this case, after a lot of battling, there was a very successful resolution. Howard thinks that really gives us a good sense of how this all works in practice and, and what an individual citizen suit can, can achieve. Um, what I'd like to do is sort of step back and get a sense of the big picture as well on citizen suits. And you commented at our LPAR conference on an article by David Edelman and Jory Riley Diakon entitled Environmental Citizen Suits and the Inequities of Races to the Top in the Colorado Law Review. So in this article, the authors analyzed a lot of citizen suit data 
And they found that many citizen suits are brought in states with strong enforcement programs, not weak, and often against the government to influence policy rather than against regulated entities to address noncompliance. But is it fair to say that despite this data that you and your team at ELPC still believe citizen suits are alive and well? Uh, they're alive and well, absolutely. Are there challenges? Absolutely. So the data that was done in the very good paper, and we have a lot of respect for the work and the analysis that they did, has a couple of pieces in it that are, they're, they're accurate, but there's sort of another picture here too. Uh, first of all, a lot of the suits that are brought against the public, uh, brought against the government are deadline suits. That's where the US EPA was required to put out a rule by such and such a date. For whatever reason, EPA didn't do it. Uh, a private party files a lawsuit. Most of those lawsuits are filed in the US District Court for the District of Columbia. Occasionally under various other statutes, they get filed elsewhere. Uh, but the purpose of those suits is for the federal government to step up and act. Uh, we call those deadline suits. And there are a lot of those suits that get brought. They're disproportionately in the DC circuit and sometimes in the ninth circuit. But there's another sort of case, which is the case I just described. And that involves a direct suit against a private party. In the example I used, ArcelorMittal and Cleveland Cliffs, which operates a very large, highly polluting steel mill in Northwest Indiana. At the Environmental Law and Policy Center, we bring sometimes cases against the federal government. We have a case in Ohio involving um, large amounts of toxic algae pollution in Western Lake Erie. That's a national disgrace. It's a local disgrace. It needs to be cleaned up. The defendant is the US EPA. The case I described in Indiana, it's a private defendant. Uh, other cases we're doing in Illinois and Ohio involve private uh, corporate polluters. So it can really work on both scales. But the key is you need to have a group, whether it's the Environmental Law and Policy Center in the Midwest, the Southern Environmental Law Center in the Southeast, uh, a place where Earth Justice or NRDC happens to have a local office where you have sophisticated attorneys who know the environmental statutes very well, who have connections to technical experts who can be involved in a major litigation and who have the financial strength to go into a case like the one that I described, knowing that it may be two years, three years, four years of litigation, and you need to be able to do that case and do it well, and not simply file a lawsuit and then walk away from it six months or 12 months later. In order to do that and do that well, not on just one suit, but in the case of the Environmental Law and Policy Center and good colleagues like the Southern Environmental Law Center, you have to have the financial base uh, that enables you to be able to take on these cases um, when the facts justify, when they're important, when you think you have a good theory and be able to do them and have the stick-to-itiveness so you can do that case over the amount of time it takes to do it, do it well, and hopefully win. And not every group has the ability to do that. The sophistication in terms of the litigation capacity, the access to and ability to hire technical experts, and then the financial base to be able to do these cases and do them over time and do them well. 
Thanks, Howard, for that big picture sort of landscape perspective on citizen suits. Um, do you have a sense of just how widespread non-compliance is? And does it vary by type of law or type of pollution, by industry, geographical region? I'm also interested in what you think are the key factors driving non-compliance. You know, we've really seen mixed performance when the Environmental Law and Policy Center and good groups like the Environmental Integrity Project take a look at how much compliance there is with clean air, clean water laws, for example, it's really a mixed bag. There are a number of large, sophisticated companies that are doing it right and doing a good job. There's some smaller companies that are doing it right, and doing a good job. And there are some large and small companies that simply are not. Um, and that's unfortunate. And that shouldn't happen, but it does happen. Uh, one of the other key factors, of course, is that businesses take their signal from the federal administration. If they're looking at a US EPA that's doing a tough but fair job of enforcement, and they wanna stay on the right side of the federal agency, then they tend to do things better. And the opposite. Uh, to just call it the way it was during the Trump administration. That administration and that EPA under those administrators were sending signals to industry uh, that you know, they weren't gonna be doing you know, a tough but fair job on enforcement. We did a fairly extensive study of enforcement in EPA region five, that's the Midwest, in EPA region seven, which is the Great Plains. And between the federal funding was going down, positions were going down, uh, the EPA under uh, Administrator Pruitt, Administrator Wheeler, was cutting enforcement positions, and they were pulling back. You know, those signals get read by the senior environmental health and safety people at large corporate polluters. Those signals get read by CEOs and CFOs. And when the federal government says we're cutting back on enforcement, and the federal government is looking to weaken the environmental laws, that's picked up by the regulated industry. And the opposite is the case. When the federal government or the state government is perceived as concerned about the environment, uh, acting in a more ambitious way, trying to be a tough but fair regulator, those signals get sent and nobody wants to get on the wrong side of the state or federal government. Those signals from the leading policymakers, from the politicians in both the federal and state government are extraordinarily important. And when the signals are, we're looking to you to do it right, and we're gonna bring enforcement actions if you don't, that tends to encourage better performance. Look, we all drive on the highways and the highway may say there's a 65 mile an hour speed limit. And you know most of us tend to obey the speed limits. If we know that there's some cops, some state police along the road with radar guns, I just think people are a little more careful. They tend to stay within the speed limit than if they hear that, you know, there's nobody out there enforcing. That's human nature. That's business practice. So getting those signals right from the federal and state governments is very important in terms of the actual compliance and actual environmental performance that we see from the regulated industry, especially the larger companies. Well, sure, that makes sense that signals from EPA and state political leadership are a key factor and also highlights the importance of citizen suits uh, for, for filling gaps. Um, 
Before I hand it back to Kristen for some last questions, I also wanted to ask Howard if technology is changing the dynamic. It's so much easier now for citizens to detect noncompliance. They can check on their communities there and water quality using relatively inexpensive monitoring devices. I know I, I have a small air monitor in my kitchen, which often lights up red when I cook on the stovetop. And, and citizens can also more easily report what they find using their mobile phones and, and other devices. So can citizens use this data as a basis for bringing citizen suits? And, and as an aside, should governmental entities use data that citizens collect? So I know that's a lot of questions, but you get the gist of it. Is the landscape for citizen suits changing as a result of new technologies? It is. Technology is enabling much better citizen science and I'll give you the obvious example. Eight to 10 years ago, the only air quality monitoring that was really being done was by the US EPA. They used very large stationary monitors. They were the size of basically a truck and they couldn't be moved or they'd be put in one location then they could be picked up and moved, but they were stationary. And they're expensive and really only research labs, maybe a university, the government could afford those. Um, the Environmental Law and Policy Center began to get into citizen air quality monitoring. And the air quality monitors for evaluating particulates began to be about the size of a, a trash can. Then they became the size of a backpack. And now the handheld air quality monitors are about the size of a, a digital camera, a, a cell phone or two put together. They're mobile, they can be clipped to a day pack, they can be clipped to a bicycle, uh, somebody can clip it to their belt and walk around. And what it gives is um, contemporaneous, good air quality data when it comes to things like particulates. There are also some stationary monitors now that are much more flexible, they're smaller, they're affordable, they can be used. Right now, that data is really good, what I'll call indicator data. What it tells you is if you have a concentration of say PM 2.5 small particulates in an area, then you look and say, okay, where's that coming from? Uh, maybe that's a bus stop. There are a lot of city buses going by a particular location and the buses are idling for a long time. Maybe there's an industrial plant across the street. Uh, maybe there's a truck yard or a warehouse that has a lot of diesel trucks that are idling. So what it provides is very good indicator data that enables uh, one to say, let's go to EPA, let's really check this out, let's find out uh, if there are violations here. Uh, it's to be tested whether that sort of citizen science air quality data uh, will stand up in court. It certainly stands up in the court of public opinion. Uh, the same is the case in terms of water quality monitoring. It's getting much, much better. It's getting much more accurate. And I think we're gonna be in a position uh, two to five years from now where citizen science on air quality monitoring and water quality monitoring is gonna empower local groups with sophisticated attorneys and technical experts working with them to bring Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act enforcement cases. And that's gonna help not only level the playing field, it's gonna enable a much more active, engaged citizenry. And we always say this, both in the court of law and in the court of public opinion. You know, no business wants to be labeled publicly a serial polluter. 
that in today's um, environment, that in today's world of public policy, that in today's world of public interest is not a good thing for any business. So the court of public opinion here matters and certainly that citizen science data using new modern technology for air quality monitoring and water quality monitoring can play out in the court of public opinion and increasingly in the court of law. It seems technology is one aspect of the path forward for citizen suits. Looking to the future of citizen suits, are there any changes to laws or agency enforcement approaches that are needed to more fully realize the potential of citizen suits to achieve environmental protection? There are a couple of things that are absolutely key. First of all, Kristen, as I mentioned, different federal administrations tend to take a different position, both when it comes to enforcement priorities, when it comes to what to do when there's non-compliance, and whether they are helpful or not with regard to citizen suits. Uh, keep in mind, there's a real unfortunate situation occurs sometimes where a citizen's group will file an enforcement action or will file a notice of intent to sue. And then a federal or state government agency will come in at the urging of the polluter and overfile and try to take over the lawsuit. And there's some unfortunate history here of some very sweetheart settlement arrangements uh, that were then challenged by the citizens groups and challenged by some of the local governments. So at the very first level, we would hope that federal and state agencies do an excellent job of monitoring and enforcement, act as tough but fair regulators, and then at the very least, if a citizen suit is brought, don't undermine it. Second, we, we see the things that happen in Congress at various points. You know, somebody files a, a proposed amendment to the Clean Air Act or the Clean Water Act to cut back, cut down citizen suits. Uh, somebody puts a rider in appropriations legislation. I think there's a, at this point, 50 year history of citizen suits working very well in that public-private partnership. And the last thing we need to do is tinker with the statutes to try to cut it back. And the last thing we need is for the courts to be cutting it back. And, you know, there's always somebody bringing a case to try to get in today's environment, uh, a federal district court for the Court of Appeals or the U.S. Supreme Court to cut back citizen suits. You know, it's a vital public-private partnership. You know, and finally, um, let's face it, there's something of a self-regulatory mechanism here. A group like the Environmental Law and Policy Center isn't flush with so many resources that we can go willy-nilly and take on lots of citizen suits because we have nothing to do. Uh, we don't have the budget to do that. Uh, our attorneys are working, you know, full out. So there's a self-regulating mechanism by which, whether it's the Environmental Law and Policy Center, Southern Environmental Law Center, Earth Justice, the Sierra Club, uh, you know, any of our other good colleagues, we look at these citizen suits pretty hard at the front end. We want to make sure the case is important. We want to make sure that it's very strong on the law and the facts. And if we file it, uh, that's a big commitment for several years. So, you know, there's this self-regulating nature to citizen suits of you don't take them on unless you feel it's important and your legal theory and the facts are pretty compelling. And finally, you have to go before a judge. Uh, lots of different judges who view these lots of different ways. 
You need to have the law right. You need to have the facts right. You need to make a compelling case because most of the polluters who we're challenging are very well and very ably represented. And suffice it to say, they have deeper pockets than the Environmental Law and Policy Center has. This has been a very insightful discussion. I want to close by asking if more citizen suits would help improve environmental protection. And if so, thinking about the self-regulating aspect of citizen suits that you touched on in your previous answer, should government and or philanthropists be providing more support specifically for citizen suit actions? Christian, yes, citizen suits are vitally important in that public-private partnership of citizens and the federal and states governments for better environmental performance. At the very least, we hope that the federal and state governments don't overfile and don't get in the way and don't undermine citizen suits when they're brought by groups like the Environmental Law and Policy Center or other good colleagues and partners. Uh, at the very best, we hope that the federal government and state governments are supportive uh, and help them go forward. Look, as I mentioned earlier, a friend of mine's comment is right on target. He said, if he's advising a corporate client and that corporate client, for example, is a steel mill, they wanna make sure that they are not at a competitive disadvantage and that their competitor down the road is living up to the environmental laws, complying fully with the Clean Air Act, complying fully with the Clean Water Act, because the companies that do it right don't wanna be put at a competitive disadvantage. We wanna see a race to the top. We don't wanna see a race to the bottom. What citizen suits help do is they help both encourage um, regulated industries, uh, heavily polluting companies to do things right because there's sort of the fear that's put into them that even if they can wangle something with the federal or state government, there are effective environmental groups out there that can bring citizen suits and hold them to account. What that does is it raises the bar. And that's good for us. It's good for the environment. It's good for economic fairness and for businesses to be operating you know, on a fair level playing field, uh, even-handed competitive basis. Uh, it's easy for me to say, of course, philanthropists should support it more. Uh, the fact of the matter is groups like the Environmental Law and Policy Center, the Southern Environmental Law Center, Earth Justice, NRDC, rely heavily on philanthropy to support the work we do. In order to bring citizen suits, you have to have a sophisticated legal team. Uh, these are lawyers who you try to pay a reasonable public interest salary. You need to have stick to and be able to take on these cases for a number of years. You have to have an expert witness budget. Um, that involves an expense. And you have to be able to say, look, this is a case that if we bring it, if it's important, and if the folks on the other side, which is often the tactic of a regulated industry, you know, they got a lot of resources, drag things out, that we can hang in there, we can do the case. And to do that, you need a strong financial base. And that's where philanthropy comes in. So for all those reasons, citizen suits are important. They help up the game of everybody. They lead to better environmental enforcement. Uh, we need to do more of them in the sense of where those cases can be brought and be brought well. And there are certainly cases that we have thought over the years, we wish we could have brought, we thought the legal theory was right. We thought the facts were right. 
And we were just at the edge in terms of our ability, in terms of our resources to do it. And this is one where more is good if the goal is better environmental performance. Citizen suits play a vitally important role. And on that note, Howard and Kristen, thanks so much for joining us today for a really interesting and important discussion. Howard, I think you really helped us understand the value of citizen suits. Uh, listeners, please make sure to look for the August issue of the Environmental Law Reporter, which will include a comment written by Howard Lerner about citizen suits, and it will also be posted on the ELI LPAR website. I also want to thank Georgia Ray, ELI's new podcast manager and research associate, for her help in putting this podcast together. Thank you all for listening today, and I hope you will join us for another ELI People, Places, Planet podcast again soon. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you, so please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at eli.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.